Can we imagine a world where we leave half of the Earth to the natural environment and use the other half for ourselves? Can we change history and protect the indigenous, the vulnerable, and the very poorest in society? Mark Maslin is a professor of Earth System Science at University College London. Maslin is a leading expert in understanding the Anthropocene and how it relates to the major challenges facing humanity in the 21st century. He has written a number of books on the issue of climate change, his most recent one being How to Save Our Planet, The Facts. Mark Maslin, welcome to One Planet Podcast and the Creative Process. Hello, and thank you for having me on your podcast. So your latest book, How to Save Our Planet, The Facts, is so interesting because this is your field. You've written other books on climate change, but it's interesting that you chose to focus on the essentials that we need to know. Well, I was getting frustrated that many of us were writing these worthy books. Dear friends of mine, Catherine Hayhoe, Michael Mann, even Bill Gates, we all had books. But the only way to actually communicate with some people was to hit them over the head with these heavy books. So I was really struggling with a new way of actually communicating with a wider audience. And I listened to a lot of podcasts. And one of them was talking about a really interesting book that's close to my heart, which is by Sun Tzu's, and it is The Art of War. And it's used by the British Army. It's used by the Marine Corps in the US. And it is just literally written in single sentences about how to actually do a war. Simple things. And I thought perhaps I can write a whole book like that. And so that's what I did. So How to Save Our Planet is single sentences, occasionally double sentences. You can read any chapter in any order. And therefore, it's just a way of communicating in a very different way. And hopefully it's slightly lighter and a bit more informative. And I think that is important because if I learn just a few things, I'm happy. So I like that idea. Frame it in terms of a war on climate change. It's a collective collaborative action, like armies of climate engaged citizens. You have to mobilize people with the simplicity. I wanted people to be able to have some simple facts that they quote down the pub or maybe over a dinner party, even in parliament, maybe even the Senate, and basically be able to throw out some of these facts and say, look, this is the science. If this is the science, shouldn't we be doing something about it? Oh, and by the way, Mark has lots and lots of solutions because half the book, four whole chapters are all about what can individuals do, what can companies do, what can governments do, and what can the international community do? So it's all very positive win-win solutions. And share with us some of those facts and some of those solutions. I think the most important thing is realizing how much impact humans have had on the planet. So what I do is I just go through some of these. So for example, did you know that we move more rock and sediment than all the natural processes put together? We also have created enough concrete already to cover the whole world in a layer that's two millimeters thick, and that includes the ocean. We have also created and make something like 300 100 million tons of plastic every single year, which we know ends up in our rivers, it ends up in our oceans. And we've also found that microplastics have been found in human blood. So this is the impact we're having all around the world. We've also cut down 3 trillion trees. That's half the trees on the planet. We have doubled carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We've increased methane by about 150%, which has led to a warming of the planet of about 1.2 degrees Celsius. And if you weigh the land mammals, 30% of that weight is us humans. There's 8 
billion of us, and I have to say a few of us could lose a few pounds. But 67% of that weight is our livestock and just 3% is those wild animals. So in less than 5,000 years, we've gone from 99% being wild animals to less than 3%. That's how much impact us humans have had on the planet. Indeed, what we've created, the man-made objects, outweighs natural life on Earth as well. We make way too many things and we don't reuse them. Oh, absolutely. We have created more stuff than there is life on the planet. And this includes things like concrete, metals, asphalt. We do not reuse it. Again, madness. When we knock down a building, do we reuse the material? No, we literally just throw the stuff away in landfill and just hope somehow it just disappears. Whereas what we should be doing is that everything that we make, we should then be able to recycle or reuse as often as possible. Again, I get frustrated by we have to have a new mobile phone every year. But again, we just have to make sure that it's much easier so we can just grab all of those metals and all the essentials and put it back into the next item or equipment. We are so obsessed with the novelty of things and that becomes a real design challenge. Something that I think is beautiful is simple and adaptable. It's not like a unique design. Speaking about solutions, how much of our GDP would we need to be spending in your book? It doesn't seem like that much in order to reach net zero. So this is a very interesting topic because a lot of commentators go, we can't afford to go net zero. It's going to cost us too much money. But it's interesting because when the downdraw project put it all together and actually started costing it out, we could actually save something like $46 trillion by going net zero. Now, the interesting thing about that is that's because we spend a huge amount of subsidies on fossil fuels, which we don't need. We can actually use that taxpayer's money better. Renewables are cheaper, safer, and more long-lasting. And also the health outcome. We know that 11 million people around the world die prematurely from fossil fuel air pollution. Now, that would be greatly reduced if we actually move to a net zero economy and therefore all those health costs. Because people forget in a lot of countries, the biggest cost in government is supporting people's health care. And so therefore, anything we can do to reduce that gives us a win-win. So again, frustratingly, going net zero is actually very cost effective. I also talk to lots and lots of companies and help them on their net zero transition. And as soon as they start the ball rolling, they start saving money, their employees are happier. And guess what? They get a load more clients who are really happy with them. Yeah. And it would really transform our cities and towns. If you think about the transitioning to renewable energy driven public transport, these roads, it's really unnecessary (laughs) with a little bit of intelligent urban planning to transition in that way. As you say, there's health outcomes, there's psychological outcomes of feeling more bound to our communities. A car is very isolating. So all these things, it just takes a bit of a step for that rethink, but it is possible. Well, I'll give you one big example, which is food. So this seems to be a battleground. But if everybody in the world moved to a more plant-based diet, and by that, I don't necessarily mean giving up meat completely. If we did that, we would half the amount of land that we use because animal farming uses a huge amount of land. But it's also about when we move that diet to more plant-based, people become healthier. Moving away from processed meat, particularly red meat, we can then make people 
healthier. We reduce the amount of land that we use for agriculture, which frees up the land that we can reforest or rewild it. It also halves the amount of CO2 emissions into the atmosphere and halves the water we use in the agricultural cycle. So it's a win-win. The amount of abuse that I get on Twitter or other social mediums when I say, look, guys, just reduce your meat intake. Perhaps have it once a week and then perhaps once a month. Make yourself healthier. And it's almost like I'm taking away their rights to eat meat. Everybody should shift away from meat to a more plant-based diet. And in the past, the consumption of meat was a luxury. And then we industrialized that process, which made it very unhealthy. The majority of diseases in Western developed countries is caused by inflammation. And that's directly linked. There's a direct correlation between the meat and the dairy products, the hormones, and these things, the toxins that we get and the imbalance in our omega-3 and omega-6s that are caused the inflammation in our bodies. When you're healthy inside, you just feel better. Well, I also think how we look at health. So how rich a country is up to a certain point increases the longevity of people. But you get to a certain GDP and it's about $10,000 per person. And then the health outcomes after that are not related to the wealth of the country. So for example, the USA, which has a huge GDP per person has longevity, which is something like six years shorter than the average European. And so for me, there is something that we are missing. Again, if we look at those diseases, a lot of them are inflammation. But if we look at the things that kill people in the developed world, strokes, heart attacks, and cancers, all of which have a particular response to high levels of social stress. When you are in an unequal society, you are just trying to feed yourself and your kids, etc., and get through the day, then that level of stress is going to play havoc with your health. And we need to step back and go, hang on, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to actually be an ultra social creature? And do we need to actually create all this stress? Why don't we rethink? Because it's not like we have a poverty in terms of money. I'm in the UK. I'm in the sixth richest country in the world. But I still have extreme poverty in my country. I have people having to go to food banks, even though they're working because they don't have enough money to buy food. And this seems to be, for me, madness when there is money everywhere but it's just not shared. Yeah, we can be living in a wealthy country and when it's not well organized, that's where we need a strong government that really works for the benefit of all and not just the lobbyists and the elite. When I was reading some of your work, you referred to our geological age using terms such as the Anthropocene and the Capitalocene. And I was wondering if you could explain these terms for our audience and how they relate to one another. Absolutely. So it was year 2000 that a group of scientists went, actually, have you seen how much impacts humans are having? This is ridiculous. And the more they looked into it, they realized that the impact that we're having on the planet is as much of the meteorite impact that happened that killed off the non-avian dinosaurs. So suddenly we are a geological superpower. We're having that massive impact on the planet. And so they proposed that we should call our period of time the Anthropocene. Now, this has become in the popular literature. Geologists are still arguing about whether this is a technical term, whether it is a real term, whether we're 
in an Anthropocene epoch on events. But actually, we all know that we're in a new geological period of time, which is dominated by human influence all around the world. And social scientists also want to investigate this in different ways. So the agricultural revolution that changed everything about 10,000 years ago, they call the Plantationocene. They talk about the expansion of Europeans and that mercantile capitalism that grew up in the 15 and 1600s. They call that the Capitalocene. That's where capitalism actually started. And a lot of people argue, yeah, perhaps that wasn't a good idea. And then you have, say, the Industrial Revolution in the 1840s, and that people have referred to the Technoocene. But overarching that is we are in the Anthropocene. We are so powerful as a planetary species, not individually, but collectively, that we have had that impact, that we have changed the geological destiny of the planet through changing the environment, changing the climate, and changing evolutionary destiny, because we're already causing lots of extinctions, but also lots of new organisms to be evolving, and we're creating them in labs as well. In a lot of your writings, you seem to imply that a capitalist mindset is to blame for a lot of the climate change issues we face today. And some of the articles of yours proposed to ideas to combat the negative effects of capitalism, the universal basic income, or UBI, and half-Earth. I was wondering if you could explain these ideas and how they act in solution to the problem of climate change. Unpick the first one, which is half Earth. So the brilliant ecologist E.O. Wilson suggested that we had to think about the world as a place that we share. And he said, look, we need a lot of stuff. We really do. So why don't we actually say we leave half the Earth to the natural environment and allow all the natural processes that we need? And then we use the other half. And it's a really interesting concept because it says to economists and it says to the capitalist system, you cannot use use all of it. You have to actually leave half of it to allow the systems to actually produce our clean air, to produce the water, to produce the rainfall. And what's very interesting is that at the moment, there is this movement of people to cities, mega cities. And so we are actually depopulating the rural areas. So the very strange thing is that the earth is becoming a wilder place. And therefore, there are so many opportunities where people are leaving to go to the big cities, where we can rewild, we can reforest, and we can bring back nature to actually keep those services that we absolutely rely on. So that one is a good one to actually push on to economists. I also would stress that the economic models that were developed by the Chicago School in the 1970s that said, okay, capitalism has been doing really well. What we need to do is take the training wheels off, get rid of regulation, let's just go for it, because they honestly believe this would lift everybody out of poverty and just really do all the great stuff that's been happening since the Second World War, but do it quicker. That didn't happen. What happened was, if you don't regulate markets, if you don't regulate systems, suddenly all of that money goes to the top. So I'm going to give you an example of how skewed our global system is. There are currently 8 billionaires in the world who own the same wealth as the bottom 4 billion people. Let that settle in. 8 people, and they're all white males, have the same wealth as 4 
billion people. That would suggest that neoliberalism has not worked. Even the International Monetary Fund has actually stated publicly that the economic ideas and theories of the last generation have been a complete failure. So we need to go back to thinking about how we harness the markets. How do we control them to the point that they actually give out stuff to everybody and it's actually then positive reinforcement? Because we need the entrepreneur. We need the ideas. We need all this new technology to actually help us deal with the environmental crisis. And this then circles back to why I think universal basic income is a brilliant idea. So the idea is a lot of countries have lots of money. So what you do is you say every individual has the right to enough money to live. So it's basic income. Now, whether you take that up or not depends on your circumstances. But it means that if you want to be an entrepreneur, trust me, I've set up companies. I have no idea how people do it when they don't have another income. I'm very lucky as an academic. I have a salary so I can play being an entrepreneur because most companies don't really take off if they ever take off for the first five years. So how do you feed yourself? How do you feed your family when you're desperately trying to work on your company 24-7? So Universal Basic Income says, okay, guys, you go and play being entrepreneurs and here we'll make sure you have this money from the state that you can actually live. It means lots of other people, alternative people could become entrepreneurs, which is great. But it also means that if you become in the middle of your life and you suddenly go, oh, actually, my elderly parents need a lot of care. I'm going to step out of work and I'm going to look after them. Universal basic income is there to collect you and support you. You can then go and look after them. It also means that if you suddenly go, I'm going to set up a commune. I'm going to do art in my local community. I'm going to engage and teach. You can do those things. It also means at some point you can go, I'm going to go back to university. I missed out my chance because I had to go out to work. So it gives people choices and opportunity. And the really interesting thing is when it has been trialed out around the world, you find that people don't actually misuse it. They do want to be active partners in society. They do lots of positive things. And actually, overall, saves a lot of money because everybody is mentally better off and, guess what, healthier. Gets rid of all of that. There is no judgment. Anybody, the richest person in the world, if they fall on hard times, they can have universal basic income to basically get them back on the entrepreneurial track and then go for it. It gets rid of extreme poverty. It means that you have a dynamic group of citizens who are all doing their own thing. Actually, this is much more important than how many pennies I earn. Yes, it's about allocation of resources. And of course, the UK used to be much more socialist. I know there are remnants of it. We could talk about the public health system and probably be another a conversation. But you mentioned megacities and many countries are heading towards that. Many countries have many megacities already. And we're living in the century of the city. So I'm wondering, as you reflect on this decade of transformation, cities, of course, are the main drivers of creativity and innovation, but they also consume 75% of the world's natural resources. 70% of um, global carbon dioxide emissions. So we have to do a lot of calculated thinking about how we're going to allocate those resources and what the cities of the future are going to look like. So for you, in terms of energy, transport, resource and waste management, food and pollution, all these disciplines and things that we have to focus on, how do you see the cities of the future? 
So I'm very positive about the cities of the future. And the reason being is that I can see how dynamic they are. So just by coincidence, last night, I was chatting to Sadiq Khan, who is the mayor of London. He's also chair of the C40. Now, the C40 is a collection of actually 97 cities around the world who basically saw climate change. They said, look, we're at the forefront of the impacts, but also we can actually make the biggest difference. And they share best practice, whether it's Bogota, whether it's London, New York, etc., Beijing, they can share all the best practice about how do you make a public transport system work as efficiently as possible for moving people around? How do you actually make sure your sanitation system works? How do you make sure everybody has fresh water? Make sure that you have all the goods and services coming into the city that you need. Because cities are incredibly complicated, sort of like ecologies. But again, with good governance, and you said this earlier, which is it's about government and that idea, which is how about looking after the city for all the citizens, not just the elites. So cities are where real innovation is happening. And it's not just in the cities that you think about in the Western world. Some of the most exciting stuff is happening in India, in those cities like Mumbai, where they're having to deal with incredible issues of slums, poverty. And that's where real innovation is happening and where we can actually take some of those great ideas and apply them to other cities. As someone who studies science, one of my biggest challenges and goals in the field is to be able to accurately articulate scientific concepts to the public in digestible ways. And with an issue as overwhelming and undigestible as climate change, Maslin's one-sentence explanation-solution approach seems genius. In our interview with Maslin, he proposes both societal and individual solutions to climate change. On the societal level, Mark's two biggest proposals for combating climate change are the concepts of half-Earth and universal basic income, or UBI, concepts which he explains most eloquently in the interview. And Maslin blames much of the exacerbation of climate change on Western society's capitalist mindset. Our overconsumption drives wasteful overproduction, but Maslin asserts that the economic growth after $10,000 per person does not, in fact, improve individuals' quality of life. Therefore, our societal drive to produce and consume and produce even more, is misguided. On the individual level, Maslin emphasizes that abstaining from indulging in wasteful industries and being aware of one's carbon footprint are good places to start helping heal the planet. After our interview, I found myself forced to reconsider my relationship with the fashion industry, particularly my consumption of fast fashion brands and participation in microtrends. I also found myself reevaluating my relationship with meat. As a recently retired college athlete, I have always been fixated on my protein intake and therefore have eaten some sort of meat product with every meal. But Maslin's advocacy for vegetarianism really stuck with me, especially his fact that the production of beef requires 20 times the amount of land than that of the production of beans for the same amount of protein. Overall, Maslin invited me to reconsider how I consume in a consumer-driven world. Maslin convinced me that, when buying a product, I should not just think like a consumer, but think as a member of our planet. So, next time you're thinking of buying that cute Y2K baby tea from Shein, I invite you to consider the following questions along with me. Do I need this, or do I just think I need this because I live in a consumer-driven society? Is this product recyclable? Is this product worth the environmental degradation its production is causing? If the answer is no, which it most likely will be, then maybe consider refraining from consumption. Your Earth will thank you for it. And now, back to the interview. 
It seems like at first glance, UBI could be interpreted as a socialist concept, but in fact, as you mentioned, it helps foster entrepreneurship and community engagement because people have more economic flexibility. So it doesn't actually oppose capitalism and maybe even fosters it, which is an interesting concept. I wanted to ask you about other economic philosophies that seem to work within the system of capitalism, asserting that it is unrealistic that our society would make the transition from a capitalist mindset to any other sort of economic mindset, which the concept of UBI, as I mentioned, could be interpreted as one philosophy I'm thinking of specifically is eco-modernism. And I was wondering how you would respond to this line of thought. I would probably be even more radical and actually go beyond eco-modernism and go, well, how about opening the debate about degrowth? The idea that growth itself is good. And again, if we do any of these measures about human well-being, human longevity, human health, up to a certain level of economic growth, it all improves, mainly through sanitation, through good health provision, through vaccinations and provision of high quality food. So that's great. And it's up to about $10,000 per person within a country. Beyond that, growth doesn't actually improve people's lives. What does, uh, and this is what, again, Mir was saying, it's governance. So you'll find that countries that have a lot less income per person than, say, the USA have better healthcare systems, have better education systems have better longevity. Japan has a longevity which is something like 87 years on average. And I think that's really important. And we can see that at the microscopic level. So in the UK, you can look at the health outcomes of different regions, and we can see that there is a 15-year difference in longevity from the poorest part of the UK to the richest. It's the same country. It's the same air. It's the same government, but because of that poverty, there is they're going to die 15 years younger than the very richest in society. And so therefore, we have to start thinking whether growth and what is growth for. Now, don't get me wrong. Okay, we need economic growth around the world because there are billions of people that need to be lifted out of extreme poverty. We need to be able to create vast amounts of energy to look after them. And hopefully that's going to be renewable, clean, safe energy and secure energy because they don't have to rely on foreign governments to provide them with fossil fuel. So that's important. We need to ensure that they have wealth to buy food because the interesting thing is we produce enough food to feed 11 billion people. There's only 8 billion people on the planet. And we know that 825 million people go to bed feeling hungry every night, even though there's enough food. And the reason being is because they do not have money to buy the food. So therefore, we need to deal with all of those. So yes, economic growth in particular areas. But when it comes to developed countries, economic growth in the US does nothing for the average person. It doesn't improve their health, doesn't improve their circumstances, doesn't improve their education. It just goes to the top 1%. So therefore, we need to think completely differently about economic growth. What is it for? Who does it service? And actually, do we think that certain countries have developed enough? We don't need any more growth. Therefore, can we actually think about degrowth for certain countries? And the thing is, everybody is, oh, that's terrible. No, because if you do it in the right way, health outcomes, longevity, education, everything goes up because you've got enough money. You just have to allocate it right. And other countries you bring up and you do it in the right way. So they decarbonize, 
They basically have secure agriculture and secure energy systems. And you just basically balance out the world over the next 30 to 40 years. Yeah, it seems like when people hear the term degrowth, they tend to conflate that with the lack of moving forward or technological innovation. But as you say, it's in fact a reallocation of resources. So my last question is, are you hopeful for the future of humanity and our planet? And do you believe that we will make the necessary changes in time to save ourselves and the world we know today? So I am very optimistic about humanity. One, because we are incredibly inventive. We have great entrepreneurs. We have great businesses. We have great individuals. And I think that's really important. What I get frustrated with is lobbying groups. We have particular levels of politics, which basically are diversive. They try to actually keep in power and keep the money by splitting up our society. But I have to say the one thing that actually gives me hope is the new generation. So for me, the new generation thinks differently. Now I study human evolution. And what's interesting is about 90% of human brain connections are actually generated after birth. So whatever society you are born into, whatever region you're built, you actually have a different way of thinking. So for example, you see toddlers going up to the TV and touching it, going, why is it not a touch screen? Okay, because they think differently. I have to say this in the nicest way. You probably don't remember a world before Google, okay? You probably don't remember a world before mobile phones, where unfortunately I, I am old. And therefore I can. So I think differently to you. And I think the great thing is because of mobile phones and because of the internet, young people know that they are connected to anybody in the world if they want to. They also realize how small the world is. They're also understanding how fragile it is. Again, they see the effects of climate change in their own lifetimes. They're seeing the impacts of plastic on their local environment and the oceans. They get it. And I think that's what gives me hope is because they are empowering that sort of change. They're saying, look, guys, you've messed up. Can you try to fix it before we come into power? And I think that intergeneration discussion and power struggle is really interesting. You look around the world, there are lots of youth movements, young people demanding change. They want different governments. They don't want the old stuff. And again, somehow we need to harness that, connect that with the politics, with the power brokers. And actually that, I think, is where my optimism is. It is that I'm going to struggle until the ends of my days to try and make this a better world. But I also know that there is a generation, two generations behind me who are doing exactly the same. But actually, they're probably going to do it in a much more effective way than we've ever done. So on that point of behavior change, and you've spoken about your discussions with the Sadiq Khan and you know, Covenant of Mayors and with companies, and you've seen those rapid adaptations, so it is possible. Could you just go into details about some of those things that, that also then empowers you on the individual level? So individual level, I have some top tips about what we as individuals can do, because I'm so aware that we all feel powerless. We are just individuals. There's 8 billion people out there. And we also know that some people have much more power and influence than, say, us as individuals do. But my top things are, one, talk about it. If you talk about climate change, if you talk about the political issues, if you talk about sustainability, guess what? The person next to you goes, oh, I'm so glad you're all worried about this too. 
we find that climate anxiety is a huge issue, particularly with the younger generations. And they should be worried. I'm worried. We are pushing the world to a limit to the point where catastrophe is already starting to happen. But again, if we talk about it with each other, that actually shares that burden, but it also empowers people. So I have seen massive company has about a five billion US dollar turnover. And in the middle of this company, a couple of people got together over the coffee table, drinking coffee, and somebody says, I'm really worried about this. Da, 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 da. And everybody else goes, oh, so are we. They go, oh, perhaps we can do something little. So they start doing some little things, et cetera, et cetera. And within five years, this company is winning all the awards from the Carbon Disclosure Project. It's basically on the net zero transition target. And the people working for them are happy. They're making more money because of the new clients they're bringing in. And so that's the power of individuals. If you start to talk to other people, you'll find that most people think like you. And actually, you can do lots of little things that make you feel better, but also have a little impact. You put all those impacts together and that changes the world. And on an individual level, I would say, look, do some really simple things like look after yourself, change your diet, move to a more plant-based diet, one that will have a huge effect on your food carbon footprint, but also have a great effect on your health and your well-being. And then also you can do other things, which is if you're able to, then you can think about actually how do you change the way you move around? How do you get to work? How do you go on holiday? How do you actually buy stuff? And I have to say, this is the real key one, which is companies are scared of us because we have power and it's called our wallet. So if we decide, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I'm going to buy Tesla because I want a green car that's electric. I'm not going to buy any of these huge SUVs suddenly the whole market goes, ooh, look, we've now got a battery SUV. Not sure that actually it will ever work properly. But again, market forces. So if a whole generation goes, I'm sorry, I want the sustainability. I want slow fashion. I do not want all of this stuff. Then again, that's going to really change how companies operate because companies follow the money. They follow where they're going to be able to sell products, and so therefore, we can actually have a huge influence on that. And a really scary fact is about 10% of the global economy is currently in the green economy. That's about $10 trillion per year. So the green economy is all around us. It's growing massively. And therefore, we can just fuel that by making the right choices. Now, do we always get it right? No, because there's a lot of greenwashing out there. But if we all try, it will make a big, big difference. So my answers are three top things, which is talk to everybody about it, even if they don't want to hear about it, eat healthily and buy sustainably. Indeed, as you identify the saving the planet, and there's other elements besides just keeping within so many degrees of change from pre-industrial levels. So yes, I would say that we have to have a holistic approach to the future. And I would say there are four things that we have to think about when we are now in the Anthropocene. One is climate change. Absolutely. Second thing is we need to think about the environmental degradation. So that is the loss of biodiversity, the loss of the rainforest, loss of the Arctic ecosystems. We need to preserve and look after those as much as possible. But we also have to, at the same time, deal with the problem of extreme poverty in the world. Remember, 
one billion people still do not have access to safe drinking water. That's ridiculous in the 21st century. We need to be able to develop systems at the international level that mean that we can have a more secure world. And those are not easy. And it's basically looking after the planet, looking after the climate, looking after the environment, looking after basically everybody instead of just the elites, and then basically making sure that we have some checks and balances that mean that countries can't just suddenly decide to invade another country because yeah, they felt like it and they're going to justify it in some shape or form. And for you in the UK, making this transition, is that made easier or more difficult through the Brexit? Brexit, oh, what a joy. Brexit was probably the greatest political mistake of the century. Why would you ever step out of one of the three large trading blocks in the world and go it alone? Again, you just look at the stats. The inflation rates in the UK are higher than any other Western country. Exports are much more expensive and we're having huge issues. Again, it was one of those classic popular political movements that seem to promise a future. Now, in no way do I blame anyone for voting for Brexit. The reason being is because they wanted change. They want something different. So if we look at the UK and we can then look at the US. If we look at the poorest 10% in the UK, they have the same relative wealth as they had in 1979. Nothing has improved for them. If we look at the bottom 50%, they have improved a little bit. If we look at the top 1%, top 1% in 1979 owned about 11% of the national wealth every year. That has now gone up to 22%. So when you hear people going, oh, no, 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 actually, what we have at the moment is really good. Well, not for the bottom 50%. And you haven't done anything to address their concerns. And I think that's the issue. We have that in many countries where popular, I would say, radical politicians go, I can make it better. I can make this country strong again. I will look after you. And actually, they don't. But again, because people feel disenfranchised from the political system, they haven't been looked after by this move to neoliberalism and actually have been lost. Again, I understand why that politics occurs. And somehow politicians have to regain the trust of the people and say, look, we're doing the best we can to try and actually rebalance things and look after the bottom 50%. Yeah, it's classic promises from populist leaders that don't ever fulfill it. So for you, you've mentioned degrowth, you mentioned different basic universal wage. Is the Nordic model appealing to you in terms of economic models that will ease a transition in net zero? For me, I think that we need to be able to explain to citizens how things can improve. I think the first thing is we need to be really honest and go, taxation is important because what it means is that you provide some of your sort of like earnings to the government. 
which allows them to then give you free healthcare, build roads, have schools, all the things that are essential for a operating society. But you also have to make sure that those taxes are fair. So therefore that they're progressive, they actually make sure that the poorest people in society are not penalised, and you can basically make sure that you bring the society slightly closer together and more of a collective. I would love to be able to bring in a UBI system. And for that, you also have to have universal systems and services. So you do have to have free healthcare, you have to have free education, you have to have free higher education, just because then otherwise people are just spending all of that basic income on just trying to stay alive and stay healthy. So I think we need to have honest discussions about how wealth is actually generated and used within a country. And politicians have to be honest about that. And people have to see where their money is going and actually improve those services. I also think we need to counter those rhetorics that say, actually looking after the environment, looking after the planet is bad for business. It's not. When you have companies like Microsoft saying, and this was three years ago, they said, we're going to go carbon neutral by 2030. Okay, a lot of places are saying that. But what they said after that was so interesting. They said, between 2030 and 2050, we're going to remove all the pollution that we have created, our value chain has created, and our supply chain has created since our founding in 1975. I'm not even sure how you calculate that. But what they're saying is, in 2050, you will still be buying Microsoft. But we want you to have a nice world in which you feel happy to buy Microsoft And we're going to realize that we're part of the problem. We're going to fix what we've done. So should you. It's important to have that sense of ownership. It also comes with responsibility. They're doing exciting things in Taiwan. Audrey Tang will be talking with them about what is democracy for the 21st century. I think that people feel like they don't understand where their taxes go. So that's the suspicion. But if you're able to vote, not just come election time, but just on these matters of budgets or different initiatives, and you feel engaged and you can see what's happening as a result of that, then you don't mind spending on it because you're receiving something. But when it's just this abstract notion, then people go lower the taxes because we don't know where it's going. Absolutely. And I think that open and transparent government is really important. I think that classic economists have demonized taxation. And I think that has been highly problematic. And I think there is a whole new generation of brilliant economists like Catherine Rayworth, who basically does Donut Economics. You've got Mariana Mazzucato, who's talking about how the state is actually the driver of entrepreneurship, not companies. You've got all these great new economies coming through that we can think in different ways. So the degrowth economists are thinking outside the box. So I think in many ways we need to ditch classical economics, which we know doesn't work, We know they have not really understood the human condition and that we're not rational. We're not at all. Okay, we have desires and we pick and choose not based on being the perfect economic model. And I think we need to think that through. And again, it always comes down to good governance. When I was asked, what is the greatest weapon that we can use or the greatest solution to climate change? It is always good governance. When you see good governance around the world, whether it is 
Bangladesh that has lifted itself out of extreme poverty and has incredible systems for dealing with extreme cyclones because they think as a group of people looking after each other. When you have all these case studies around the world, for me, one of the most important thing is who you choose as your politicians, who you choose as your leaders makes the world of difference to how successful your country is. And as you think about the future and education and the kind of world that we're leaving for the next generation, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? My word, that's a huge question. I think that young people should understand our history. And I think this is incredibly important. So it's sometimes very difficult to talk to young people in the UK about relations with other countries because they don't have the history. They don't understand the colonial history. They don't understand where the British Empire slaughtered people or imposed draconian measures or actually had huge impacts on different societies. And I think if you understand where your societies come from, with all the good and bad bits, you can then say, okay, now I understand where we are situated. I can understand where economics has come from. I understand that neoliberalism was an effort to try and lift everybody out of poverty, but it's failed. So for me, it is understanding where we've come from, understanding the struggles understanding why the poorest, vulnerable people and indigenous people are always at the front end of any conflict or any crisis. And therefore thinking about how do we actually deal with this current crisis in a way that those people are not adversely affected. For the first time in history, can we actually change history and go, right, we will protect the indigenous, the vulnerable and the very poorest in society and therefore, because we have actually read our history and learned from it, can we actually understand how to move on and not to repeat the mistakes of the past? Yes, it's so important. And you outline it so well in your book, The History and the Solution. So thank you, Mark Maslin, for laying out the facts, how we can live sustainably and sharing solutions that can be implemented by individuals, companies and governments. We appreciate your message of active hope. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. An absolute pleasure to be on here. And thank you for inviting me. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Callie Cho with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Callie Cho. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.